I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the LRB podcast. If you subscribe to the LRB, you can get the first 12 issues for just £12. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Hello, and welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. My name is Thomas Jones. It's Tuesday the 14th of April. At the weekend, I spoke with Lana Spools, who's a paediatrician in London. Lana wrote her first piece for the LRB, a diary about what a junior doctor does, in 2016. Her piece in the current issue describes how to set up an intensive care unit. She talked to me on Saturday morning between shifts, she was back at work on Sunday evening, about the ways hospitals have changed in response to COVID-19. Hello Lana, thank you for joining us. Hi. Um, hi. So uh, in your piece in the in the current issue of the, of the LRB, you describe what it takes to set up a an ICU, an intensive care unit. Um, and But you're not actually working in ICU yourself, is that right? Because you're a, you're a paediatrician, so you're still working on the paediatric ward. Yes, I am. Um, many of my colleagues have been moved over to the adult side um, to look after patients with COVID. Um, I'm not one of them myself, but there has been a lot of reshuffling within the hospital to kind of move people from areas that are less busy to areas that are more busy. Um, so that includes moving people, doctors out of paediatrics and also out of kind of community services um, and things like dermatology or allergy clinics that aren't running at the moment. They've all kind of been pulled into the hospital to um, treat all the adult patients with COVID. But you're, you're not because you work with, with newborns and obviously some things can't, can't be put on hold and can't be stopped. Exactly. So babies are still being born the whole time. Um, and so we ne- still need a service to to treat them and look after them. And the whole maternity service obviously still needs to be in place. But there have been changes to it, haven't there? Because, for example, what happens if you have um, a mother who's tested positive for, for COVID and, and, is, and has a baby? What happens then? How does that change your, your working? Um, so obviously... It changes what you wear in terms of the PPE and the masks you have to wear um, and the gowns. um, And you also treat them differently. So if if the baby's well, they stay with the mum and they get looked after. If the baby's unwell and have to come into the neonatal unit, then we tend to have to, you know, we have to ban those parents from coming in because they're positive and they might spread it to other people. And the babies are kept isolated until we can be sure whether the baby's are negative or positive. In in terms of testing, so if... uh... If a, if a mother comes in with symptoms, she'd be tested for for COVID or they all are or only, only symptomatic? So mostly it's only the symptomatic um, people who are tested, but they're all kind of presumed positive until we get the negative test back. Um, so you treat them as if she is positive until kind of proven otherwise. And is the baby tested then as soon as it's born it's sort of part of you get the vitamin k jab and they have a covid test as part <laughs> of the... so we tend to test them a couple of days after they're born so there's right. time for them 
to develop enough of the virus to be up and we do a couple of tests and you wait until all of them are back and negative before you consider them not to be covid positive um because amongst the tests there is already quite a high um false negative rate um i think lots of places said it's up to about 30 percent so you want to do particularly with these babies you want to do a couple of tests to be sure they're definitely negative before we allow them to be in the same room with babies who we you know no don't have it and is that sorry is that 30 percent false negative for everybody or for, for everyone. babies for everyone okay for everyone, yeah. and how many times do people get tested then so if you be if you test negative because of the high false negative rate does that mean you try and test everyone at least twice or is that just not possible i think if you are really strongly suspicious that they do have covid you probably would test them again a couple of days later um and definitely from all the reports in china they were saying they had a lot of people that tested negative but they could see signs on the x-ray or the a ct scan that they did have covid so then they retested them and then they were positive and is that something you found that it's something when i was talking to um Rupert Beale at the crick institute last week was saying that doctors are getting much better at diagnosing it without having without the tests and that as it were that's just kind of the, the experience you've seen enough patients who have it you can doctors are getting better at diagnosing uh, knowing who needs testing because it's you can tell who's got it yeah i think the more that you see the patients with it the more you kind of pattern recognition when the symptoms you know the kind of pattern symptoms go through but there is still a lot of variability amongst patients and some people it seems like there's a big number of people that have no symptoms at all or some that you know some follow a more traditional pattern but others like we see a lot of children that have diarrhea as their main symptom which you know conventionally you may not have thought of that as being part of covid but actually now people are kind of recognizing more that that might be their presentation so they get they'll probably get tested more routinely now and in terms of treating children who do test positive what what do you do with your patients who have tested positive in terms of does it complicate their own health or if that's even the word what do you with a with a, a newborn baby who has COVID-19 what's so so far they I mean I've not seen any myself but from the kind of literature in the ports they're normally completely well and at most they're just a bit you know have a bit of a snuffly nose um but they're otherwise completely well in themselves in the major that applies to the majority of children there obviously are some children that get more unwell but they tend they tend to be the ones who do have more kind of underlying health issues um but you would treat them ultimately similar to the way you would treat adults so that means giving things like oxygen or any sort of breathing support if they're really unwell then sometimes you have to intubate them and and um, put them on a ventilator um and then obviously the usual things kind of paracetamol and fluids um and just basically supporting their body to fight off the infection and is the is the pediatric icu separate from the adult one or do children go into the the adult yeah so ICU? normally they're completely separate um and they're run by completely separate teams they're often in different buildings but a lot of work of you know across the uk there's a lot of movement to have um a few designated paediatric ICUs in a few hospitals and then the um, other paediatric ICUs can be turned into adult ICUs. So they're kind of centralising it um, so that patients, you know, if you you have a hospital that they might normally be admitted to and that has, normally has a paediatric ICU, but that's now shut and they'll be transferred to another hospital, which is now like the designated paediatric ICU. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, no, it's quite complicated. So, I mean, the, the levels of reorganisation among hospitals and between hospitals have, got, have been 
quite significant, haven't they? Exactly, yeah. So there's been a lot of um, coordination and trying to have to transfer patients to a lot of different hospitals in order to make the room where you need it. And in terms of the Nightingale, the, the specialist or the dedicated hospital that's been set up in the XL Centre, is that taking patients yet or is that still waiting for when? So apparently they have started taking patients. I don't know how unwell those patients are or what level of care they're actually given at the moment. I think they've only taken a small number. Um, right, because it isn't actually an ICU, is it? It's a, it's a high-dependency unit rather than a... So they claim it can be an ICU. I think it's a little bit um, difficult when... I don't know exactly how it's going to work in terms of... Obviously, you normally have a lot more things on site in terms of labs and um, x-rays and things like that. I don't know how well that is all set up there. Um, but I think it sounds like their plan is that it'd be patients who've been admitted to hospital needing intensive care or high-dependency unit care in one of our normal hospitals and then they would get transferred there once they're kind of stable um on whatever ventilator settings you've got them on or something so i saw on the news today that holby city has has donated its working ventilators to, <laughs> yeah i don't know i didn't know they had working ones i thought they'd have fake ones but um and in terms of doctors getting sick and being tested you had i was right to ask about this you had symptoms yourself didn't you of couple of weeks ago a few weeks yeah so what do you do when you think you have it as a doctor so obviously as soon as you think you've got any symptoms you'll have to let your team know that you're not going to be coming to work and like everyone else we have to you know stay at home for the seven days from you getting symptoms or 14 days if it's someone in your household that's got symptoms um we at the point when i was unwell we didn't have any staff testing it has now come in Um, but a lot of the centres, so there's kind of designated centres that people can go to to be tested, and some people's own hospitals are also testing them. Um, But often most of the centres are drive-through, so that kind of limits it to people who can drive already and have a car. um, So it is literally drive-through? It's literally drive-through. You open your window, someone in PPE comes and sticks a swab in you or gives it to you to do yourself, and then you kind of pass it back out your window. That they send it off. But do you drive? I mean, no. So I don't own a car, so I wouldn't be able to go be tested in this way. In which case, I'd have to be off for a week. Okay, and you can't you can't ride your bike to the drive-through. I don't think for the main drive-throughs you can. I think some of the hospitals are letting people cycle there, but also the question is if you're cycling through a major city. I know there's obviously less people around than usual, but there's obviously the risk that you might transmit it and obviously you can't get public transport there if you think you've got symptoms so the point of the car is that in your car you're you're still kind of you're, isolating you're, you're, in your car you're, you're isolated in your yeah. car um and then and on this and the question of ppe because it's something that i saw out of my daily walk yesterday that there were um a couple in a car and they were in their car windows up they were both wearing masks they were both wearing gloves as they were sort of readjusting their masks with their gloves yeah. on in the car and the sense in that's not best practice for for PPE, is it? No. So you're meant to be very cautious not to touch your face with the mask on because then you can kind of break the integrity of of the mask and that you might touch, you might then pick up something that's on the outside of your mask onto your hands and transfer it to your face. And you're having to wear more protective equipment than you would would have done a year ago or yes. a few months ago. In, yeah. yeah, so we're now at the point where you're assuming everyone in hospital might have COVID, regardless of whether they've been tested for it or not. So for every patient, you're normally wearing at least a kind of surgical mask, gloves and an apron. 
Um, and then for people who are actually confirmed, um, you'd probably also, depending on what, there's a lot of this stuff about whether kind of aerosol generating procedures um, and these procedures that might include things like doing CPR or intubating someone, you have to wear a more high-tech mask, which is these FFP3 masks, um, because the thought is that kind of ex- those procedures expel the virus into the air that you can breathe in rather than being just droplets that have landed on surfaces that you might get by touch. And do you have you have an, enough equipment? Just speaking for yourself in your ward, do you have the equipment you need? Yes, yeah. Um, we have so far from what I've seen, but I know that a lot of other hospitals have been struggling to get it. Um, and there's obviously been a lot of news reports about it and about people um, having difficulty um, getting all the PPE they require. And if, for example, without without thinking or, or by mistake, or whatever you do, you touch your face while wearing gloves or you adjust your mask and you break the seal, then do you throw it away and put on a new one or yeah. is, there, is that so you're meant to throw throw that one well clean your hands throw that one away clean your hands again put on a new mask and matt hancock wouldn't think that was <laughs> i don't know if he thinks that's wasteful or not <laughs> Wasting but it, but, you um, have yeah. to be safe so yeah no, of course you're saying that that um patients who obviously procedures that that can be postponed or delayed have been or things that can be done in the community that um but presumably they're also some people who well, there have been news reports of people who needed to go to hospital but either because they're scared themselves haven't been um don't go in and have got much sicker than they otherwise would have been in terms of as well of a and e admissions for, for for children have you noticed that going down significantly yeah so there's definitely been a massive drop off at attendances to a and e both in pediatrics but also a drop off in adults the majority of the people that are coming into adult a and e are covid but there's also quite a you know they're still less busy than they probably for lots of them than they would be on other normal days um and there was obviously a big worry that people are not coming in when they have their heart attack or their stroke or something you know they're just carrying on at home for as long as they can because either they don't want to come in um because they're scared of catching covid while they're in hospital um, there's also some concerns that 111's advice for kind of anyone who has a temperature is immediately just stay at home, isolate, don't go to hospital. But for a young baby that's coming in, that might be a sign that they have sepsis and normally we'd be doing blood tests and starting antibiotics on these babies. Um, and they might be getting missed because, you know, they may be advised by someone that, oh, it's probably COVID, stay at home. Um, so I think people are, I think there is ongoing work with 111 to be kind of trained more about kind of trying to pick up those nuances and obviously they've had a massive increase in their workload in quite a small amount of time um so i think obviously there is probably a lot of pressure on the 111 system at the moment um but there's definitely concerns that we are missing these patients and that they are coming in later and sicker um and i think even with ebola um there was some evidence that there was kind of a higher mortality from other conditions at that time because people weren't coming to hospital because they didn't want to catch Ebola or you know any of the other outbreaks like SARS and things um, and there's also some concerns as well that pregnant women aren't coming in as much as they normally would so most of them are now having kind of remote consultations um, over telephone or video calls with their midwives um, but also that some of them might not be coming in as soon as they normally would do if they felt the baby wasn't moving as much or you know all those kind of little things in pregnancy which might be a sign of something that's actually quite significant there's a worry these women aren't coming in as early as they normally would and therefore 
we're not able to intervene in the way we normally would. And are more women having babies at home? Are there more home births since this started? Um, so I'm not sure if there is definitely yet, but <clears throat> I think there'll be an in, you know there'll be a lot of people trying to encourage those women that are safe to have a baby at home to have them at home because it just reduces the number of women coming into the hospital and the number of people that are in the hospital and potentially could um, be exposed to COVID. You're listening to the LRB podcast. The LRB has a new newsletter called Diverted Traffic, which features a different piece from the paper's archive each day. A complete absence of references to plague, pandemics or quarantine is guaranteed. And the piece will be brought in front of the paywall for 24 hours, so you can share it with anyone you want to. To sign up, go to lrb.me forward slash traffic. That's lrb.me forward slash traffic. And if you subscribe to the LRB, you can get the first 12 issues for just £12. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Well, on the one hand, it's obviously worrying that people with more serious conditions are, are not coming into hospital. There are some things which, as it were, people who would go to A&E when they really didn't need to. Um, so, I mean, they're not going either. So in that point of view, and that, presumably there are some things that can be done in the community. Yes, and I think they're trying to do much more in the community than we used to do. So things like whether people can have blood tests done at their house by, you know, a midwife or a community doctor or nurse or someone who can come out and do some of those procedures to save people coming into hospital, going to the phlebotomy service, mixing with other people. So there's kind of a big move to get people um, as much treatment as they can at home, which obviously for the patient, actually a lot of the time is better than them having to come into hospital if someone comes to your house and does your blood test. Um, that saves you a trip into the hospital and the kind of stress associated with that. And are you... Is there any work that you do that you, as it were, you can do from home and not rather not doing in the hospital? That yeah, paperwork or any other. So we've started. There's a there's doctors who are home either because of their own health needs, and so they need to, you know, anyone who's kind of got um, bad lung disease or immunosuppressed might have to stay at home for their own health to not be exposed to it. Um, and also, there's a lot of. Um, people who are kind of on call at home that can come in if needed but actually when they're at home might do other work so lots of hospitals are kind of setting up um some hospitals setting up doctors with remote access at home and you can just do kind of the paperwork that you would normally do on your shift um from home so things like writing discharge letters for patients um and kind of ordering routine investigations and things like that and has your workload gone up are you having to work more hours, longer shifts? or? Um, for me at the moment, it's probably about the same because I'm kind of isolated in, in the kind of neonatal unit and you still have the same number of... Um, we're kind of a protective service, so we still have a good number of staff um, to meet our needs. Um, but I know obviously in the kind of adult side of it and the people looking after COVID patients that they are obviously working hard and longer hours and, so, yeah... And a more kind of irregular pattern. So often most of us are getting our rotors. Normally you'd get maybe six months at a time for your kind of rotor for, you know, to lead you up until the summer or something. But at the moment, most people are getting it, you know, week by week or only a couple of weeks at a time because everything keeps changing and staff are moving and staff are off sick. So everything just has to be really flexible. 
And of course, the other thing that um, relatives or fewer relatives are allowed in hospital at the moment, aren't they? That you're not that visitors are the severe restrictions on on visitors. Yeah. So at the moment, kind of all adult wards are not letting anyone come in to visit, um, which obviously means for the patients that are unwell in hospital, they don't have the support network. They don't have people to provide comfort and care for them, um, and then that also puts extra you know toll on the doctors and nurses and healthcare assistants and everyone who's there because you know obviously then there's a need to provide a lot more emotional support for patients and to be the person who's there you know if they're dying if they're otherwise kind of dying alone or you know they're unwell and they need someone to talk to um so i think it's very difficult both for the patient who's in the hospital but also for their relatives who are sitting at home often the relatives are having to self-isolate completely because they've been in contact with their relative you know with their relative who's now admitted for covid and it means they're just waiting for a phone call from the doctors to say you know good news or bad news or whatever yeah and it must put extra pressure on the on the doctors and nurses who are having to provide that level of or trying to provide that level of emotional care as well as their as well as their other professional care exactly and i think it's you know it obviously puts an emotional toll on the doctors and nurses as well because you feel you want to do more for these patients than than you can in terms of emotional support um because often as you say you have other all your other duties that you have to do and sometimes you can't spend as long talking to patients as you'd like to or sitting there holding their hands or um whatever it is that might kind of help them you obviously also then still have a long list of other jobs you need to do and then kind of pulled in all different directions. And I think that's quite stressful for a lot of and upsetting for a lot of the um, doctors and nurses on the wards at the moment. And obviously some of those, a, a number of those patients who are dying are, the, are themselves doctors, aren't they? And that's sort of so caring for colleagues Yes, in that way as well. And there seems to be quite an unfortunate number of doctors and nurses and pharmacists who have all died from covid um there's obviously we'll have to investigate it further i expect once this is over to know how much is related to their exposure at work and whether it was related to them not having enough ppe i know one of the doctors had been posting on facebook a few weeks before complaining about the lack of ppe in his hospital um and so there obviously are big concerns that um whether there's enough supply of PPE in all hospitals and also that the guidance has changed a lot and there are some differences between the WHO guidance as well as our Public Health England guidance, um, which I think leads to a lot of anxiety for staff members as to which one they should be following. Um, and obviously, you know, it's it's very scary for those that are working directly with patients with COVID at the risk that that poses to you and to your families back home when you you know come back each day from work and a lot of people are doing quite complicated routines of cleaning their clothes and making sure when they come into the house they immediately undress shower clean everything you know to ensure that they don't risk asking anything to their family members and in terms of you say that the um that shifts are now being planned a week or two in advance and rather than six months ahead do you and your colleagues sort of had it look beyond the next the next few days of the shift to how how this may end or is it just too early to start thinking about that yeah I think we're all very cautious and kind of assume that it's actually going to be you know months and months and months of disruption it's going to be probably quite a while before we all completely go back to normal 
and I imagine any kind of return um, and kind of, you know, stopping the lockdown would obviously have to be a very staggered, gradual approach. And I think amongst medics, there's obviously also a big worry that once you kind of get rid of the restrictions on people, that then we'll have a massive new surge again and we'll be back where we were, you know, back where we are now. So I saw there was reports that around 90 people in South Korea who had been positive and had thought to have got better have now tested positive again. And they don't know if that's being reinfected or if they've never actually fully recovered. But Yeah, and I think that's part of the concerns. You know, there's obviously been talk about antibody tests and whether that means if everyone gets an antibody test and, you know, they've shown that they've had it before and they've got an immune response, um, that then they can all go back to work and everything will be fine. But I think there are lots of concerns about whether we're sure that people develop proper immunity to it and whether you can catch it again or whether that you might be able to still pass it on to other people, even if you're immune yourself. If you can, you know, some bugs like MRSA, you can just carry on your nose. So whether you can carry it on you and pass it still to other people, then obviously you're still at, at risk to other people. And presumably someone, even if they were immune, could still carry it on their hands, as it were. So that sense of that way of, of passing it on is going to, it makes no difference if you have antibodies or not. It's not as if your magic antibodies on your fingers are going to zap the Exactly, virus. yeah. You still pass <laughs> yeah. the virus in droplets on your hands to people or objects. But, and the, but more positively, people are getting better and are being discharged. And there are, and, f- and at the moment, ICUs have not been overwhelmed and that the you know that as as they say the front line has not been breached and and so I mean that it's it's working then the you know the doctors are doing an amazing job and yeah exactly most people who get it are getting better so there is a yeah and actually the majority of people who have it are sitting at home with their cough and never get tested so they never know for sure but actually loads of people have it and are completely well and never need to go to hospital at all and there obviously are quite a lot of people that go to hospital with it and recover and get better and go home and so there are a lot of positive stories there and we do still have capacity in ITU to look after these patients so in some ways we have you know it is amazing how the hospitals have managed to create a lot more ITU space um and you know it's really I found it really positive to see amongst all the other staff members everyone's so willing to help in any way you know you have people who've only ever worked in pediatrics who are willing to go work in adults you have people who've you know normally work in the community nursing teams and are willing to come in to the hospital work in that environment with the risk you know acknowledging that there's a risk to themselves that they otherwise wouldn't be at because everyone wants to help and everyone's kind of coming together and there's been much more interlinks amongst different hospitals so that everyone really is working like a big team to try and get, you know, to do the best that we can for, for the patients. Thank you, Lana, very much. Thank you. You can read Lana's piece on how to set up an ICU in the current issue of the LRB, along with Adam Tooze on the consequences of the pandemic for the world economy, James Butler on the British government's response to COVID-19, and Wang Shuying's latest report from China. It isn't all coronavirus. Other pieces include Joanna Biggs on Simone de Beauvoir, Jeremy Harding on Extinction Rebellion, and Frederick Jameson on Conrad. To subscribe to the LRB and get your first 12 issues for just £12, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. The LRB also now has a daily newsletter, Diverted Traffic, featuring a different piece from the paper's archive every day. A complete absence of references to plague, pandemics or quarantine is guaranteed, and the piece will be brought in front of the paywall for 24 hours, so you can share it with anyone you want to. To sign up to that... Go to lrb.me forward slash traffic.